You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in, we everybody. Episode four. Oh, he's so handsome. What's the Seventy-nine of the podcast. It is America, the Air Sports Podcast. It is Tuesday. January 11th, 2022, people. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. And I hope everybody is ready for a national championship game edition of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. So much to get into, so much to discuss, so much to debate about today. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Can you hear it in my voice? A lot to get into. Obviously, it goes without saying, most of today's show will focus on Monday night's national championship game. This is what I want to do. I have about 8, 10 thoughts, big picture stuff on the game, what happened. This is not going to be a show where I break down, well, on third and 11, let me tell you. No. Big picture stuff. What this means for Georgia. What this means for Bama. What this means for college football as a whole. Why I think this is good for college football. We will discuss and debate it all. Again, about 8, 10, 12 bullet points. We'll talk, I don't know, 17, 18, 19 minutes, however long this puppy goes. And then from there, we will wrap and we'll do a season-ending edition of where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. That segment will stay but obviously with college football winding down, we'll do a season long where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, college football edition, and we will get out of here. Obviously, it goes without saying, taping schedule is different this week. We usually do Monday, Wednesday, Friday shows. Obviously, with the title game on Monday night, there was no need to wait until Wednesday to do another show. So this week's shows on Monday, Tuesday, Friday. Friday, we'll be back with everything that has happened following today's show. With that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is, how about my dogs? All right. Let's have a heart-to-heart here. I don't really think I can take credit for my dogs. Yes, I picked Georgia. For people who don't know, I picked Georgia to win the national title in the preseason. I've been calling the dogs on basically every episode since. And then I abandoned my dogs. I abandoned those little puppies in an alleyway in Indianapolis hours before kickoff. Last episode, I obviously picked Alabama to win the national championship. But let me just say this. Um, You know, while I don't think I can really take credit for Georgia, congrats to Georgia. You were the better team dating back to the first weekend of the season. 
against Clemson, and you never really let up that title. Yes, you lost to Alabama, but if you go the totality of the season, you were the better team. If you go the totality of Monday night, you were the better team. If you go from start to finish, this was the best team and the most deserving team and the most deserving national champion that we could have. And so when I look at it in the big picture, first of all, congrats, Georgia fans. It's been a long time since we could call the dogs and claim them as the national champions. And really, when I look at the big picture of this game, I think to me that is the single most I think jarring thing about Monday night, you know that it's been since 1980 since Georgia has won a national championship, but I don't think you really realize how long ago that was. Um, I'm of a certain age. I'm in my 30s. I was born in the 80s. I was not born in 1980 the last time Georgia won a title. But what I will tell you is, is that to me, it didn't really, 1980 doesn't feel like all that long ago. It doesn't feel like dinosaurs are roaming the earth. It doesn't feel like we were driving around in horse and buggy. But when you start to look back at how long that is in college football terms, that is a really long time since Georgia's won a national championship. For fun, I went back on Monday night and I started to look at some of the teams that have won a national championship since Georgia did in 1980. And this is not to tear you guys down, Georgia fans. It's to put some context on what you did on Monday night and why it was so important. Here are some of the teams that have won a national title since Georgia in 1980. BYU won a national title since Georgia in 1980. Georgia freaking Tech won a national title since Georgia in 1980. Washington won a national title since, since Georgia in 1980. Tennessee has won a national title since Georgia. Notre Dame. Penn State has won multiple national titles Michigan won a national title. Crap, Nebraska has won three national titles since the last time Georgia won. Miami, a small private school. Yes, they're in the middle of the biggest hotbed of high school football talent, but Miami has won five national titles since Georgia in 1980. And so it has been a long journey. It has been a long road to get to Monday night. And what I'll tell you is, even watching from a distance, I was not in Indianapolis I think you could feel how big this game was for this program, okay? It had been a long time. Yes, you get there four years ago. And I think the thought was four years ago, okay, it's year two, Kirby Smart will be back. But then 2018, the season happens. You lose to Alabama in the SEC title game. 2019 happens. You lose to LSU in the, the, the SEC title game. Last year happens. And finally, you arrive in the 2021 college football season. And it feels like, as I said a minute ago, it was Georgia's season from beginning to end. And I think you could feel that tension in the air in Indianapolis, not only on Monday night, but in the lead up to the game. We all saw all the Dogs fans on the uh, you know in bars in Indianapolis calling the dogs barking grown men on airplanes barking this one felt like it meant so much to Georgia to its fan base to its coaching staff to its players and so when i look at the big picture of this uh, not only this game but of this season for Georgia when i look back on this 2021 Georgia football team the Bulldogs now. Now, I'm not talking about the grown men barking and calling the dogs in the bars. When I look back on this team, I will think about a couple things. I will think about resilience. For First of all, I'll think that they were the best team in college football all season long, but you know what I'll remember about them specifically? The dominance during the regular season, but the resilience of this program as a whole. What do I mean by that? It's been 40 years since they've won a national championship. 
beyond that, they get to the brink in 2018 against two, a second and 26. And I know Georgia fans don't want to hear it, but I think the context matters for this game. You get so close in 2018, you lose. You get so close the following year in the SEC championship game to beating Alabama, you lose. And you wonder, is this opportunity ever going to present itself again? Then you get to the SEC title game undefeated. You have guys and girls in the media like me all year long saying, this is Georgia's year. It's got to be their year. Bama isn't that good. Ohio State's down. Clemson's definitely down. And then you get to the SEC championship game and you lose to Bama. And you get embarrassed. And you pick yourself up off the mat. And you rally. And you destroy Michigan. And then you get to Monday night against Alabama. And when I talk about resilience, yes, it was getting over the hump against Alabama, but it was even get, uh, getting over the hump against Alabama Monday night in Indianapolis because it's not as though that game was handed to Georgia on a silver platter, and I think we'll remember the final score of 33-18. to 18. I think we'll remember the fact that they won this game going away, but it wasn't as though even in the game, even after all you've overcome, after 40 years of not being able to get over the hump, after 2018, where you can't beat Bama, after the following year when you lose in the SEC title game, after you lose this year's SEC title game to Bama, you come back, and even in this game, you talk about resilience, the two biggest calls of the game went against Georgia. The first call of the game, early in the game, the Bryce Young, was it a fumble, was it a strip and score? Uh, Nicobe Dean picks it up, goes in for a touchdown. We think Georgia's up 6-0 before this game even starts a minute into this game. We think, oh my, and then all of a sudden, it gets stripped off the board. And then you go to much later in the game at a seminal, pivotal moment of the game, and the exact opposite happens. Stetson Bennett drops back in the pocket. We think he throws it. We think it is a we think it is a, a fumble, or we think it is an incomplete pass. It is called a fumble, and then completely out of nowhere, the Alabama defensive back branch catches the ball. It's called a fumble and recovery by the defense, and that was, I will tell you this, that was one of the single most crazy plays that I can ever remember in sports because the refs, I don't think they knew what they, they saw, but they just kind of guessed they guessed on the they guessed on a fumble for Stetson Bennett. They guessed on the the conversion and the um, you know recovery by Alabama inbounds. It was so crazy. Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreit had no idea. The media covering the game in the stadium had no idea. It ends up being in theory the right call. The refs kind of lucked into what ended up being the right call. Alabama gets the ball. Alabama scores. They go up at that point, eighteen to thirteen. And you start to think, th this, this Georgia team is cursed. If they lose the national title on that play, then Georgia's cursed. There's nothing else they could do. So think about everything that Georgia had to overcome. 40 years. 2018. A second straight loss to Alabama. Four straight losses to Alabama overall. Losing in the SEC title game. And then even on Monday night, the two biggest plays of the game go against you. Six points are on the board that get taken off. Seven points are given to Alabama. That's a 13-point swing in that game, and Georgia had to overcome it all. And so when I look at this team, I look at their resilience, and I look at their dominance because part of it was the resilience, 
But part of it was those guys in that locker room and in those huddles in the second half looking at looking themselves in the mirror. Because it was really fascinating to watch this game play out, right? Early in the game, it's back and forth, nip and tuck. Um, you know, a lot of different variables, a lot of different things or whatever. It's a lot of defense. A lot, nobody's really making a ton of big plays. It's 9-6 to six going into halftime. But I look at the resilience of this team, and then I look at the dominance of this Georgia team late, which was reflective of what they did all year. When we think back on this Georgia team as a whole, I just said resilience, but you know what might be the better word? Dominance. Every single week they brought it. Every single week they delivered. Every single week up until that Alabama game, they were just, the game was over after two or three possessions. And so while that did not happen on Monday night, how about the dominance late? Alabama took control of that game in the third quarter coming out of halftime. And I remember sitting there saying, wow, Alabama's just killing them on both lines of scrimmage. And then all of a sudden it looked like the fourth quarter, something flipped in Georgia's head and said, this is what we've been doing all year. It's closing time. It's winning time. We're not losing to those guys again. And they completely dominated the line of scrimmage. They completely dominated the end of game situation where they outscored Alabama 22-9 in the fourth quarter. And oh, by the way, really just completely dominated the line of scrimmage in, in, in the end of that game and really exerted themselves in the end of that game to win a national championship. You look at the final tallies, I told you one of the reasons that I liked Alabama coming into this game was because Georgia got so much credit for their line of scrimmage play, that dominant defensive line, and it was actually Alabama who had the better run defense all season long when you look at the totality of the season. Well, guess what? Final rushing tallies in this game, Georgia just pummeled them down the stretch, just pushed them to the brink. Alabama looked out of gas. Final rushing tallies, Georgia 140 yards rushing, almost five yards per carry. Alabama finished with 30 total yards rushing in this game, and that was the difference. We're going to talk about Stetson Bennett in a minute. He's a great story, but at the end of the day, it was Georgia in the fourth quarter deciding we are not losing this game. We are running the ball right at this team. We are going to physically punish them, and that is exactly what they did. Speaking of which, part of the story of this game it is Stetson Bennett. And I will say, Stetson Bennett is one of the great stories in recent college football history. Because think about how much this guy overcame. First of all, Kirk Herbstreit talked about it after the game. But it's worth noting, this guy came to Georgia as a walk-on. He was buried on the depth chart. We knew there was zero chance this guy, no, we didn't even know there was zero chance this guy was going to play because there was no, no reason to know who he was. We follow recruiting 365 days a year. Nobody knew who he was. This guy's been in this program for so long. I saw this and it blew my mind. He actually was, uh, he played the scout team Baker Mayfield in the lead up to the famous Georgia-Oklahoma Rose Bowl in 2017. That is how long he has been in this program. Since 2017, he played Baker Mayfield on the scout team in the lead up to the Rose Bowl. He ends up leaving the program because he knows in his heart of hearts that he's never going to get a chance. He goes to JUCO. Apparently, he was committed to Louisiana. I guess that means he would have played for Billy Napier. But then Georgia convinces him to come back. But even when he comes back, think about everything that he had to overcome. Just in the last year and a half, two years, they sign JT Daniels out of the portal. They sign Jamie Newman, the quarterback from Wake Forest, out of the portal. They bring in a five-star named Dewan Mathis. And so going back to last season, 
Dewan Mathis wins the job out of fall camp. JT Daniels isn't ready. Jamie Newman leaves the program. Stetson Bennett gets in for Dewan Mathis because he can't do anything in the season opener against Arkansas. Stetson Bennett beats him out. Stetson Bennett keeps the job. Then Stetson Bennett loses the job to JT Daniels. JT Daniels gets hurt. Stetson Bennett regains the job, and the team never loses faith in him. And so I think he is one of the single greatest stories that we've ever seen in recent college football history. Walk on, leaves the program, comes back, is at the very best fourth on the depth chart, earns the starting job, loses the starting job to JT Daniels, gets it back, and even in the lead-up to this title game, even during the national championship game, we were talking about, should we give JT Daniels a chance? Listen, I still have a tweet out there. I'll own it. I said in like the third quarter, can we not give JT Daniels one series? Can we not give JT Daniels one opportunity? And what does Stetson Bennett do? He spends the entire fourth quarter doing nothing but making plays. He makes enough plays to win the game. He makes enough plays to bring Georgia a national championship. We see him crying on the sidelines. We see how much this means to him, how much he means to his teammates. It is just an absolutely incredible story. Really quickly, credit to Kirby Smart. We're going to get to Kirby Smart later in the bigger picture. But this guy, and including for me, has taken more bullets, more punches, more. And I, I know we're not supposed to feel bad for a, a, a head coach that makes six, seven, eight million dollars a year, whatever Kirby Smart makes. But I mean, this guy has been a nonstop punching bag. Teacher versus pupil. I said father versus son. That was how the people in Tuscaloosa treated him. He's Nick, Nick, Saban's da, da, Nick Saban is daddy. Daddy pats you on the head and daddy sends you on your way. And I think coming out of the SEC championship game, I really think there was a belief like, this guy's never going to beat Nick Saban. So congrats to him. I want to get back to Kirby Smart in a minute. But I do, from the Alabama perspective, want to talk about this for a minute. Because in the same way, when I look back at George, okay, I talked about the two words that come to mind, resilience and dominance. But they really did have a lot of things kind of break their way over the course of the season. They stayed relatively healthy. They stayed this, they stayed that, whatever. Alabama, let's talk about Alabama for a second. Because I think that even in a loss, this is one of the great coaching jobs of Nick Saban's career. I know you get, oh, Torres, you never say it. Criticize Nick Saban. He lost the game. I agree 100%. The better team won. Congrats to Georgia. But when you think about everything that Alabama had to deal with all offseason long, the fact that they were even here, the fact that they were actually up at one point late in the second half, it wasn't like they got blown out and it was never competitive. I mean, they were up 18-13, with 10 minutes to go before Georgia ripped off 21 straight points to end the game. 20 straight points, I guess, technically to end the game. And so I bring it up because when I look back at this Alabama team, it goes back to what I said Monday. Think about everything they had to overcome this year. First of all, you lose, I know Alabama loses talent every year. They lost a historic amount of talent off last year's team. Six first-round picks, Heisman Trophy winner at wide receiver, first-round pick at quarterback, two first-round wide receivers, first-round running back, first-round offensive tackle, first-round cover corner. Six, record, tied the record for most first-rounders in one season. Alabama tied the record with six. They lost their entire offensive coaching staff. Steve Sarkeesian leaves. He brings a bunch of guys with him. And so going into this year, you have a team that lost six first-round picks, a quarterback that has never taken a meaningful snap in college football with an entirely new offensive staff, and you have them leading the national championship game in the fourth quarter. But when I look back at the totality of the season, I think as crazy as it sounds, 
it probably just wasn't Alabama's year. And that sounds crazy. They were in the national championship game, up in the fourth quarter, and it really wasn't their year. Sometimes everything breaks right in your favor, and sometimes everything breaks wrong. And I do think for Alabama, I think everything broke wrong. You look at it. First of all, you lose Jamison Williams, your single best playmaker early in the game, and he doesn't come back. Um, and I know there were reports that it could be an ACL. I hope he's okay. I don't know what, what his uh, immediate pr- uh, future is. Hopefully it's nothing serious. Hopefully he can recover in time for the draft. But that was in the national championship game. In the lead up to the national championship game, you had already lost your second best wide receiver. You had lost your two best cover corners. And you had lost two starting offensive linemen. So they came into a game. If they're the number one team in the country, the number two team, without their top wide receiver, their top two corners, and two starting offensive linemen, and then they lost another wide receiver in that title game. And so when I look at this season, I think you can make the case this is about as impressive as any season that Nick Saban has ever put together. The fact that they were on the brink, that they were this close, it's pretty incredible when you really think about it. It's pretty incredible when you think about all the adversity they overcame. And I think Nick Saban knew from the beginning of the year that it was going to be an uphill climb with these guys. And I think about Nick Saban in the totality of this season. Think about Nick Saban. Week one, you beat Miami. You crush Miami. The final score in that game, 44-13. You beat Miami. You're up 27-3 at halftime. What happens? That Tuesday, Wednesday, Nick Saban rants, raves, yells, screams. This team thinks they've accomplished something. This team thinks they've done something. This team thinks they... And he just just lays into them. And I said right there, Nick Saban knows this team is not as good as we are giving them credit for. Two, three, four times throughout the year, he does similar rants. Rat poison. You guys are giving them too much credit. What are you guys doing? They're not as good as they think they are. And then what happens from there? It was in the lead up to the Iron Bowl. It was in the lead up to the biggest regular season game of their season. And he pulls the reins off. And he says, I've never been more proud of a group. He says, uh, they, this team has limitations, but they're the most, one of the most resilient groups I've ever been around. And so I think even Nick Saban knew in his heart of hearts that this wasn't an iconic all-time Alabama team. But he also knew that they were giving him every single thing that they had, that they were leaving it all on the field. And so in the totality of, uh, of Alabama, I think it's disappointing. But I also think this is one of those teams where you feel like you got every single thing you could out of it. Remember, I'm the guy that was saying on this show for two, three, four, five weeks, this is not a vintage Alabama team. To have a non-vintage Alabama team down two top wide receivers, two top cornerbacks, two offensive linemen, to have them leading in the fourth quarter of the national championship game, that was as about as great as Nick Saban of a coaching job as he's done. And you cannot argue that he wrung every last drop of, of talent and potential out of this team. And I'll tell you what, going into next year, I don't, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be number one with Bryce Young and Will Anderson coming back. Finally, what I would say, a couple of quick thoughts as we wrap here on that national championship game. First of all, I'll say this. I think we may have a real rivalry for Alabama finally, right? And like, we've been talking about this for years now. Basically, Nick Saban took, came to Alabama 15 years ago at this point, 2007. By 2008, he's in the SEC title game. By 2009, he topples Urban Meyer and Florida. And basically since then, we've been looking for a rival for Nick Saban in Alabama. 
for a while. We thought, oh, maybe it'll be less miles in LSU. Nah, that didn't happen. Then we thought, oh, Urban Myers at Ohio State, they just beat Alabama in the first college football playoff. That's going to be like a great 10-year. They'll meet in the playoff every year. And then that never really happened. Then there was three or four years with Clemson, but they don't meet in the regular season, and Clemson seems to be on the way down. And then we think it's Coach O and LSU, but now Coach O's out. I'll tell you this. There is a real chance that Georgia has finally emerged as that team that can definitively challenge Alabama year in and year out. And really, they frankly probably emerged about three, four years ago, but they are fully established now. And here's why. Um, it is indisputable at this point that Georgia is basically recruiting at a level similar to almost equal to Alabama, okay? And they've been doing it since Kirby Smart got there. And that's not really my opinion. That is a fact, okay? 24-7 Sports does something called team composite rankings. And what that means is every offseason, they go through, they rank all your recruiting classes over the last five years, they look at all the players currently on your roster, and they look at where their recruiting rankings were coming in and how talented your roster is top to bottom. Not how good your previous recruiting class was, not how many NFL draft prospects you have, how good your team is according to the recruiting rankings. Well, guess who was number one this year? It was Alabama, but Georgia was just a percentage point below them. Then there was a big gap, and it was Ohio State. Then there was a big gap, and it was Clemson. And then there was a big gap, and it was actually LSU, which was probably, by the, 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 st the statistics, the most disappointing team in college football this year. But I bring it up to say that Georgia has really been recruiting at Alabama's level for about four or five years now, and they haven't been able to get over the hump, and now they have. And now there is nothing that they cannot sell to a potential recruit, right? I talked about this on Monday's show. If they could just get over the hump, now they can go into every single recruit's home. And there's nothing Alabama can say. Because before they could say, you're going to win a lot of games. You ain't going to win national championships, though. I told you the story of the kid that went on radio in Alabama. And he said, uh, they said, why did you pick Alabama over Georgia? And he said, why would I drink Diet Coke when I could drink the regular thing? Well, now Georgia is the regular thing. They've already been recruiting at an elite level. They've won a national title. And I believe that they can be a real rival for, college, for, for Alabama. Last, last, last thought, and that's this. And I tweeted this out on Monday night, and I think a lot of people would probably be surprised by it. But for a sport that we don't think has parity, first of all, I think it's good anytime anyone other than Alabama, Clemson, somebody new wins the national championship, okay? I think it gives, I think it gives not only their fan base help, hope, excuse me, but I think it gives other fan bases hope as well, right? Michigan beating Ohio State isn't just good for Michigan's fan base. It's good for Penn State's fan base. It's good for Michigan State's fan base. It's good for Wisconsin's fan base because now those fan bases see, you know what? Somebody toppled the big bad giant. We can do it too. And so I think Georgia winning a national championship, I think it gives hope to Brian Kelly at LSU. I think it gives hope to Billy Napier at Florida. I think it gives hope to Josh Heupel at, at Tennessee, uh, Brian Hart, whoever, that yes, you can build a national champion in the same conference at the same time as Nick Saban. I also think it, it, it's good for college football whenever somebody other than Alabama wins the national championship. And it's really funny, right? Because, oh, by the way, the last four national titles, the last four national titles have been won by four different teams. I don't think people realize that, okay? Georgia won the national title this year. Alabama won it last year. LSU won it in 2019. Clemson won it in 2018. Alabama won in 2017. So I bring all this up to just very, very, very simply say, 
that for a sport that supposedly has no parity, four national championships in the last four seasons, and how about this? I looked this up. In the last 20 seasons, dating back to 2001, the 2002 title game when Miami won it all, here are all the different teams that have won a national title. At least one. Miami, USC, Texas, Florida, Auburn with Cam Newton in 2010, Florida State with uh, Jimbo Fisher in 2013, Ohio State, the first college football playoff, Clemson, LSU, Alabama, Georgia. That's 11 different national champions in the last 20 years. For comparison's sake, college basketball has 12 different. So basically, college basketball has the same number of teams winning on a year-in, year-out basis. But I bring it up because anytime anybody else wins, it is good for the sport. Anytime anybody in the SEC besides Alabama wins, it is good for the sport as well. So those are some kind of thoughts on the national championship game. But at the end of the day, congratulations to Georgia. Best team all year, most deserving team all year, most resilient team all year. And it's not like they didn't overcome a lot on Monday night in Indianapolis. The two crazy plays. Georgia's a deserving national champion. Could not be happier for that fan base. All right. So what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to wrap with a season-ending edition of where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. I'll be right back. All right, everybody, I am back. Going to be back, going to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I do want to wrap with what is quickly becoming America's favorite segment, where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. And I think by now, you guys and girls kind of know the concept of the segment. Stole it from my buddy Colin Cowherd. I've been on with Colin a few times. Uh, You know, love what he does, respect the hell out of him. And every week he does a segment where Colin was right, where Colin was wrong. I decided to bring it to the Aerotora Sports Podcast for one simple reason. It is because there is nobody on the planet that loves telling you how right they were when they get something right more than your boy Torres. Oh, your boy Torres told you this. He said that. You should have listened here. Well, shut up, Torres. You freaking, you're annoying sometimes. And so why I do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong is because everybody in the media loves to gloat when they were right and they told you this and they told you that. But nobody really slaps themselves on the wrist when they were wrong. And I think that's really fun to do. I think it's fun to keep myself in check. I know that you guys like it. And so what we're going to do is a season-ending edition of where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, all college football. Not to say that if other college football stuff happens, it won't be in future Aaron right, Aaron wrong segments. But where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, a totality of the season in college football. Where Aaron was right. How about my dogs? All right, listen. I know. I talked about it at the beginning. Yes, I abandoned Georgia early. Uh, Yes, I I picked Georgia to win the national championship, and then I abandoned them right before the title game. I had my little dogs. I was holding them, and then I threw them in an alleyway in Indianapolis in the freezing cold, and they were shivering. But at the end of the day, here's the bottom line. I still did pick Georgia to win the national championship in the preseason, and I don't know if I was the only one that did it, and I don't want to discredit anybody else who may have but I didn't see very many people, if any at all, that actually did have the guts to pick Georgia in the preseason. This was a program that hadn't won in 40 years. This was a program that could never get over the hump in the big games. And I said, I don't care. I trust Kirby Smart. Georgia is my national championship pick. And I think most of why I picked them ended up coming to fruition this year. One, talent across the board. They were as talented as anybody in college football across the board. There was obviously no doubt about that by the end of the night Monday. Two, I said they got the schedule. Look at who they play and look at who they don't play. They don't have to play 
Alabama, LSU, A&M, Ole Miss in the regular season. Florida is going to be down. Tennessee isn't quite there yet. Now, I'll admit, a school like Kentucky was probably better than I thought they would be. A school bet like Arkansas was better than I thought they was going to be. But I said, look, they have the schedule. Everything is breaking. And I think that Kirby Smart knows that this is his window. Alabama is down, as I told you, all the stuff that they lost last season. First-year quarterback, new offensive coaching staff. We have the schedule, and Kirby was aggressive in the portal as well. That's what's worth noting, and this was part of the reason I picked Georgia. In the middle of June, he went out and got two marquee players out of the transfer portal. Now, one didn't end up making it, Eric Gilbert. But the other one was Darian Kendrick, a cornerback from Clemson, who played a major role in Monday night's title game. And so where Aaron was right, yeah, I know I abandoned Georgia. But I also picked him in the preseason, and it was for mostly all the right reasons. Congrats to Georgia on your first national championship since 1980. Where Aaron was wrong. Part of the reason that I did pick Georgia was because my argument was they finally got the quarterback right. Well, it turns out they got the quarterback right, just not the guy that I picked. Because if you remember, in the fall, it was JT Daniels' job. And like we can joke about JT Daniels now, whatever. He was really good when he played last year. Final three weeks of the regular season, he plays 30-plus points in all three of those games for Georgia, goes to the Peach Bowl, wins there, beats Clemson in week one, then he gets hurt and never gives the job back to Stetson Bennett. And so where I was wrong was, one, I thought JT Daniels was going to be the difference maker, and then two, when he got hurt, I said as recently as yesterday's episode, I go, there's no way you can win a national championship with Stetson Bennett. Stetson Bennett proves me wrong, Georgia's quarterback room proves me wrong, and I'll say this. I said they had the right quarterback. It turns out they did. It just wasn't the guy I predicted. Congrats to Stetson Bennett. You proved everybody wrong, including myself. Where Aaron was right. This one's really not just this year, but it's about two years old now. And coming out of the pandemic, do you remember this narrative of, well, the pandemic is officially what has slow going to slow down the coaching carousel. And there was all these articles and all these smart media guys and girls, oh, well, this is finally going to slow things down. And I said, no, it's not. If you hate your coach, you'll come up with whatever money it takes to go ahead and get rid of them. And oh, by the way, it happened last year at Auburn, Tennessee, whatever. And I know Tennessee had NCAA violations, so it's a little bit different. Texas changed their coach last year. And then there was this year's coaching carousel where USC got rid of their coach in week, in week two, LSU got rid of Coach O in week whatever it was, six or seven in the middle of October, Florida fired Dan Mullen, Miami fired uh, Cur- uh, uh, Manny Diaz, on and on and on down the list. Virginia Tech changed coaches, Washington changed coaches in year two. You go on and on down the list. It is incredible how many jobs opened up, but it cracked me up that there were people in the media that were claiming, oh yeah, this is going to slow down the coaching carousel. No, it's not. College football, if you don't like your coach, you will do what it takes to get rid of them, especially in these high-profile programs, especially in the SEC. Now, did I see the scenario where a guy like Mel Tucker, James Franklin, and that takes it to another level, by the way. Think about all the guys that not only got, got fired and got big buyouts to leave, but think about all the guys that got massive extensions to stay where they are. James Franklin, $75 million after a 7-6 and six season. Mel Tucker, $95 million with 18, 19 wins on his resume. So when people were like, oh, they're not going to fire coaches anymore. Uh, yeah, they will. And they'll keep doing it as long as we play college football. Where Aaron was wrong. So this is kind of where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Because when all these jobs opened up, what did I tell you? I said, look, you know, if a guy's name is out there, it's for one of two reasons. 
it is because they are either looking to get a big raise somewhere or they really are trying to get out. And so as time went on, every time a new coach would, 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 would be linked to a job, I'd say, look, I'm not saying Dabo Sweeney's going to leave Clemson, but like we have to consider the possibility that he isn't happy there. And so where Aaron was wrong was I got some of the names really wrong. I really thought there was like a 12-hour window that Mike Tomlin was going to leave, was considering leaving the Pittsburgh Steelers to go coach college football. Then he did that whole press conference of, uh, uh, there's not a check the boosters can pay me that can write me that would make me leave the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I'm not saying definitively no, but no. Uh, There were other jobs that I got wrong. I didn't see the scenario where Dan Mullen was gone after this year. I didn't see the scenario where Miami fired Manny Diaz when when they fired their AD in early December or whatever it was. So a lot of the changes that actually happened, I necessarily didn't get right, but nobody gets right, right? Nobody could see the scenario where Miami's going to open up and Mario Cristobal is going to leave. Nobody can see the scenario where Dan Mullen coming off an SEC title is going to leave. But I told you it was going to be crazy. I told you it wouldn't slow down. uh, And it was just an incredible, incredible coaching cycle. Where Aaron was right. Um... Remember when NIL first became a thing like two years ago? And you guys can go back into the archives and listen to this. But when Gavin freaking Newsom, who is, of course, the governor of California, NIL all started, Gavin Newsom and LeBron James basically did a segment for the shop in which Gavin Newsom was looking for some positive PR, and he put in this this bill or whatever for NIL. And I said at that point, I said, no one is not in favor of athletes getting nothing. But I am just telling you, if we put in NIL, it is very quickly going to become pay for play. It is very quickly going to go be go to the highest bidder, all that good stuff. And college football as we know it and college basketball as we know it will never be the same. Later this week, I'll do some segment on how we can kind of control NIL and how we can control the transfer portal and what guardrails need to be put in place. But I told you this was going to happen, and this was year one of NIL, year one of the full-time, uh, one-time transfer rule, and it was chaos. Quinn Ewers reclassifies just to go get a bag at Ohio State, then immediately bounces to go get a bag somewhere else. Caleb Williams, I talked about it on Monday's show, decides to transfer. He could commit to USC at any minute. But I think people saw that, oh, by the way, if Caleb Williams just wants to go to the highest bidder, if Caleb Williams wants to go to Eastern Michigan and make a million dollars, like there's nothing we can do to stop this. And it's kind of anti what college sports is supposed to be about. Not saying players can't get more. But it was never supposed to be pay for play. It was never supposed to be go- to go to the highest bidder. Yet here we are, six months into NIL, and if the NCA doesn't do anything to slow it down, uh, nothing's going to change. Where Aaron was wrong. Let's go back to those Crimson Tide because look, all season long, I basically said good Alabama team, not great Alabama team. They exceeded my expectations, and as I said last segment, I think in many ways they exceeded Nick Saban's expectations. Part of why I was so down on Bama was one the on the field results. 20-14, to 14, narrow win over LSU, narrow win over Arkansas, narrow win over Florida. Obviously, the loss to Texas A&M early in the season. But part of it was that I saw that Nick Saban didn't trust this team. And so all season long, I was on this thing of, this isn't a vintage Alabama team. Well, as I said before, they were up in the fourth quarter of the national championship game, down their top two wide receivers, their top two corners, two starting offensive linemen. This may not have been a vintage Bama team, but it was way better than I gave them credit for all year. Congrats to Alabama on an incredible season. Alabama will be back. Alabama with Bryce Young and Will Anderson is my preseason number one team next year. They ain't going anywhere. Where Aaron was right. I said this uh, about a minute ago. Remember I said I picked Georgia and everybody. Go back to the preseason. Do you remember how many people 
were so high on Oklahoma coming into the year. And I kept saying, like, I like Lincoln Riley, and I love Lincoln Riley at USC. We'll be talking about him plenty if he gets Caleb Williams. Um, but I said, like, you know, I said, are we overhyping Oklahoma a little bit? I mean, they're coming off a 10-2 year. I don't love Spencer Rattler. They still don't play defense. Well, sure enough, it was the worst season at Oklahoma in recent history as they didn't win the Big 12, they didn't win Bedlam, and Lincoln Riley bounced. And so I told you in the preseason, don't believe the hype. Spencer Rattler ain't Kyler Murray. Spencer Rattler ain't Baker Mayfield. Now, I had no idea Caleb Williams would be so good, but Oklahoma was the preseason darling the same way that I don't know who it's going to be this coming year, but I told you, don't buy into Oklahoma. Where Aaron was wrong. All right, this one's for the OGs of this show. In July of 2020, I was thinking about this the other day. Caleb Williams committed to Oklahoma. This was in the height of the pandemic. Nothing was going on. And I was scraping and clawing the bottom of the barrel for any type of content relevant for this show. And so I remember when Caleb Williams committed, and I wanted to do a big segment on it because I wanted just something to talk about. And I said... Guys, girls, I could do a big segment on Caleb Williams, number one quarterback in 2020, but he's not going to play college football until next year. And let's be honest, none of these high-profile recruits really pop in year one, so it's going to be two or three years. It's not going to be till the fall of 2022 or 2023 that we talk about him, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time you know, t- talking about how big this commitment is when at the end of the day, I don't really know if it's that big of a deal. Well, fast forward, Caleb Williams gets the job at Oklahoma, Caleb Williams almost elevates them to another Big 12 title, and now Caleb Williams is the hottest name in the transfer portal. By the time you guys listen to this, Caleb Williams may be committed to USC, uh, and he is going to fundamentally change that program if he goes there as well. So you talk about a where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Uh, you know, me saying I don't got to talk about Caleb Williams because he's not going to be a difference maker for two or three years. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I was totally wrong. Really quick, a couple others where Aaron was right. Uh, LSU, I just remember going back into the fall, I said, I don't get what the big hype is. People were talking about LSU as a preseason uh, title contender, preseason playoff contender. I said, did you watch their defense last year? Uh, Not very good. Don't have a quarterback. Never trusted Max Johnson. Blah, 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 blah. Well, fast forward, disappointing year. Coach O is out. Uh, and, And I think this program is just a fascinating team in turmoil and in transition. Brian Kelly has come in. The recruiting class is not working out right now. They did not close strong in February. He is not making inroads in Louisiana. But I told you in the preseason, I said, I, I don't get the hype on them. I don't understand where, why there's so much buzz. I don't understand why people are so excited about them. Um, I just don't get it. Finally, where Aaron was wrong. I said, I don't believe that Cincinnati is going to make the playoff because I don't believe that there's any way that the committee is going to let them in. Now, part of it was the committee just ran out of teams, and part of it was I didn't. I, I think the committee, if they had had anybody, somebody from the Pac-12, somebody from the ACC, if Oklahoma State had punched that ball across the goal line, Oklahoma State would have gotten in. But credit to Cincinnati. College football season was unbelievable, but it was historic for one simple reason. We got a group of five team in the playoffs. Cincinnati becomes the first one. Now it'll be interesting to see is what happens next for Cincinnati. Obviously, Luke Fickle, um, you know, we'll see what happens in these uh, uh, hiring cycles. Does Jim Harbaugh leave Michigan? If he leaves Michigan, what does that mean for Michigan? Do they go after Luke Fickle? If Ohio State, I don't think Ryan Day is leaving, but if he were to, um, you know, what does that mean for Luke Fickle? But Cincinnati makes the playoff. Could not see that happening. All right. I think that's it for this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I want to get out of here because, I'll be honest, i got to get this show up 
because it's going to be a crazy week in college football. We're going to figure out what happens with Jim Harbaugh. We're going to figure out what happens with Caleb Williams. But I do hope you enjoyed today's show. Incredible show, fun show, national championship edition of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Congratulations to the dogs, your 2021-2022 college football national champions. Before we get out of here, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to my dogs. I'll be back later this week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.